0: One thing about St. Louis Bank is we're very, very acutely aware of and compliant with federal regulations <laughs> and 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 with, and with the Missouri Division of Finance. I mean, it's, it's we, good we, to hear
1: your lawyer say that. Well, no, I mean it,
0: it, it. I mean that's just the way it is, and it's the way it should be. You know, we want to be strictly compliant. This is such a gray area. Um, it's uh, it's really frustrating from my perspective, because it's a federal issue and they should fix it.
1: This is the Vance Crow
0: podcast. Welcome back to the
1: podcast. I'm glad you're here. This week's interview is with an attorney named Kevin King. And if you were a person from St. Louis, it would be highly likely that you have met Kevin, because as you will hear from the very beginning of this interview, Kevin knows everyone and It is actually no coincidence that I'm talking with Kevin. He's not the tort attorney or class action attorney that I was talking about before uh, a few episodes ago. He's actually an attorney that does contracts and legal disputes. and uh, You'll find out a little bit more about his history, but not only does he do those things in general, Kevin is actually my attorney. He helped me restart my company when I left Bayer and now I'm doing um, some consulting work and public speaking. And I had to have contracts in order to be able to set up my travel arrangements and and the fees for, for me coming to speak. And I had a chance to sit down with Kevin and talk with him. One of the first things you'll notice in this conversation is that while many of the other experts I talk with dive deep really quickly into how they studied their field and the inner workings of their deep knowledge, and in a way, Kevin does that too, but not in the way that you would think of normally for an attorney. You see, Kevin is a man that has built an entire career on building relationships and helping people work out their differences, and rather than be a person that really hammers on every single uh, line of a contract he finds a way to make things work. And I think that's what's so interesting about this interview is it gives the inner workings of an attorney that you can really relate with, that you can understand why he does what he does and how he's become such a valued member of the community. You will hear after the first, I don't know, about 45 minutes of the conversation, we do start to get into some technical information. At one point, we talk about how our banks, specifically the bank that Kevin and I are both involved with, St. Louis Bank, how are they handling the fact that the federal government still regulates cannabis, and yet there are states that are opening up uh, the ability to grow medical marijuana or even recreational marijuana. So how can banks interact with this when there's two sets of laws that seem to be contradicting one another? Another thing we talk about is, you know, the difference between federal and state laws in general and how this has impacted things like biotech and um, and how laws get created. So this has a little something for everyone. It was a great pleasure to sit down with Kevin. He did me a great big favor the night before um, an interview that I had scheduled. They had to reschedule, but he gracefully stepped in, stopped by my house super early in the morning with his cup of coffee, and we were able to sit down and record this. I want to thank you so much and enjoy this conversation with one of St. Louis's true gems, Kevin King. Kevin King, welcome to the podcast. How are
0: you doing, Vance?
1: I'm doing great. So last week, I went to the horse races just outside of St. Louis in in Fairmont Park. I actually didn't even know there was horse racing outside of St. Louis, but we show up for an event for firemen and police officers, and uh, there before me stands Kevin King. I didn't even know you were going to be there. My own attorney, the attorney for the bank... (laughs) And uh, so I'm surprised to see you there. And uh, as we go through the horse park, uh, this is a new experience for me because I'd never been to one before. And you see that there's all different stretches of society. There's the people that own horses. There's the people that uh, are just there betting. And then there's just kind of the people in the pit, you know, with their little tickets, just waiting for the horses to go by. And as we are walking through the park, everyone, everyone, everyone knows Kevin King. <laughs> and I don't think it's because you're out at the horse tracks. I think they knew you from other places. How in the world do you know as many people as you know, from the horse owners all the way down to the guys betting on the tracks?
0: Well, uh, I think it's, I've been, you know, I've been around a long time, so that helps. I've uh, been practicing law for 38 years, uh, mostly in St. Louis. I was in Jefferson City, for three and a half years as general counsel to the attorney general that was over 25 years ago and then uh came back to st louis and started my own firm and had my own law firm since then but uh my family uh was very involved in politics my father was in the state legislature for 20 years uh six from franklin county and then 14 years from st louis county Uh, i'm the youngest of five um my uh older brothers were involved in politics. And then I got involved a little bit, uh, not on the side of being a candidate, but, uh, sort of behind the scenes and, and, uh, you know, got to know a lot of people doing that. And then, uh, I also played basketball at, uh, two years at Mizzou. And then I transferred and played my last two years of eligibility at St. Louis university. And you just, you know, people get to know you through that. And, uh, You know, just being St. Louis is a very parochial town, and you get to know a lot of people. And uh, uh, I consider myself a fairly friendly guy, and so uh, I'll say that that's an understatement. (laughs) So you practice
1: law. You know, I've worked with you. You've helped me set up some contracts, and and uh, you know everything's been smooth sailing with us. But what kind of law do you practice?
0: Well, when I first started practicing, I was with, I, right out of school, I was, I went with one of the big firms downtown. I was there about a year and didn't really, uh, it wasn't really my, my thing. Uh, and, uh, so I left and went with a smaller firm and, uh, actually did a lot of bankruptcy work. I was a bankruptcy trustee for two years when, uh, one of the, existing trustees took the bench as a bankruptcy judge. I took his place and I was a trustee for two years. I really enjoyed that. That was a,
1: what is enjoyable about doing bankruptcy? Well,
0: you're a trustee. So you're, you're kind of like the, the arbiter. You, you are between the debtor and the, uh, the creditors and you sort of administer the case and make sure that, you know, if there's assets that they get dispersed properly and, and that sort of thing. Who pays you in that case? Uh, you're paid by the, you're paid by the court, but you know, it's, it's a very small fee. Uh, back then it was $35 a case for a no asset case. And that was, if you'd go through it and there were no assets and then you'd mark that off and, and, uh, but you had, you had a, what they called the three forty one meeting every month. I'd have, well, twice a month cause I had the Hannibal docket as well. And, uh, the debtor would come in, um, and creditors would come in and you'd sit and you'd Go through the the bankruptcy schedules with the with the debtor and and ask questions and uh, make sure that you know said everything that they needed to say in the schedules and uh, so you're kind of in the middle and are they uh,
1: hostile conversations?
0: No, not at all, not at all. Oftentimes they both the attorneys and the debtors would refer to me as Your Honor. We have a question, and I'd say I'm not a judge and uh, I'm just the trustee, so you can call me Kevin <laughs> and. Uh, but uh, there was a lot of interesting cases, too, some very interesting cases. And um, I was good friends with the judges, got to know the judges real well. And a lot of the bankruptcy attorneys in St. Louis and in Hannibal got to be good friends with many of the attorneys up in Hannibal. Uh, uh, one of them now, uh, Sketch Renland Charles Renland, his uh, nickname is Sketch. He's now a bankruptcy judge. And, uh, that was a lot of fun getting to know those people and, and, uh, create, you know, uh, having some contacts in, in that part of the state.
1: Does bankruptcy law work the way that it should? It, did, I mean,
0: well, I don't, I haven't practiced bankruptcy law for a very, very long time, but, um, I think generally it does. And, and I, you know, I think, um, there's a, there's a place for, for the bankruptcy code in, in the legal system, a very important place. Um, if you're on the creditor side, it's it's a constant battle. But there are a lot of people that just have bad luck and they need a fresh start, and that's what the idea is. Uh, the bigger bankruptcies, the Chapter 11s with the big corporations, that's a whole different ballgame. That's that's it's still bankruptcy, but it's a different different uh, animal. Chapter seven, Chapter 13 cases are uh, individuals who. Uh, you know, are just trying to get out of debt or in a chapter 13 uh, work out a plan to pay off their debt. And then chapter 11 cases are usually they're called reorganizations. And that's when they go into bankruptcy and the automatic stay goes into place the the day it's filed, meaning creditors can't take any further action, can't repossess equipment. And big companies then have a time to sort of reset and figure out how they're going to reorganize and, and, Pay their creditors, and uh, that's a very complicated process. And there's some f- excellent, excellent uh, bankruptcy attorneys in St. Louis, and and some good judges. So it's, um, but the generally the process works. But the thing that about bankruptcy for me, well, not bankruptcy, but having done bankruptcy, um, it has been extremely helpful in my practice since then because my practice since then has been primarily uh mergers acquisitions all transactional uh work uh, asset purchases stock purchases asset sales stock sales um representing companies in that regard and uh also you know, and you learn so much about you know the pitfalls of bankruptcy and what how that can affect transactions and
1: Pitfalls, what? meaning the, the ways that people got out of paying their debts, or pitfalls in in some other way.
0: Well, if you're, how do I answer that question? It, it goes both ways, but uh, for my clients, they would generally be on the side of you know trying to avoid you know not getting paid and or losing uh, security, their security interest in whatever assets. They might hold, and I do a lot of banking law now, as you know, and I'm the general counsel for St. Louis Bank, and uh, banks always have to be and need to be concerned about, you know, the the impact of a bankruptcy filing, and uh, it's it doesn't happen that often, but when it does happen, you have to be aware of it, and you have to know what to do, and that's really really helped me in that regard.
1: And so, if you enjoyed bankruptcy, what made you decide to go do some other part of law?
0: Well, I mean, I enjoyed being a trustee, but I did not enjoy representing debtors and necessarily I didn't, it was, I didn't not, I did not not enjoy representing creditors, but uh, my practice just led me in a different, in a different direction. Um, I had a lot of friends and contacts in St. Louis and I built a practice around just corporate and business law and that's the way it led me. I mean, it just, it just kind of happened.
1: And so, what what are you doing day in and day out as a, as a lawyer? I, every time I come to your office, you're reading a contract.
0: Yeah. Well, I do a lot of reading, uh, reading, reviewing, writing, drafting, counseling people, but uh, on on uh, on their various transactions or whatever. But about a year ago not not about a year ago, just almost exactly a year ago, I became general counsel for St. Louis Bank. And prior to that, I had been general counsel at Pulaski Bank prior to their merger with Busey Bank and I was there for ten years. I had an office at, at Pulaski Bank. I was in uh, my bank office three days a week and in my law office two days a week. And now I'm full time in the office at St. Louis Bank, but I still I'm still in private practice. I have a law partner who uh, now does most all of my drafting and reviewing and then then I will help him with, uh, you know, sort of finalizing the documents. But most of my time now is spent working uh, for St. Louis bank and doing their work.
1: When I saw the contract that you wrote for me to, to go with a speaking engagement, I thought it was going to be about two paragraphs long, but it ended up being like four or five pages. That's a short one. And, but why, why are things so complicated like that? Why, why is it that there have to be four or five pages of,
0: yeah? Yeah. Of well, ease to make a doc to make a contract. I think it's just it's just evolved over time. Now, I do everything I can to minimize uh, those contracts and only include in them what is necessary. Um, get to the business points. Be very careful. Clear on the business points.
1: Simple language.
0: Yeah, you know, straightforward, simple language. uh, Because there was a time when, long, long time ago, when I actually litigated in my er early in my career and you know, you want things to be clear, concise. And, you know, that also has helped me in drafting because I, I look at it as if how would a judge review this? How would a jury look at this type of thing?
1: Because that's kind of what it feels like. It feels like um, people are putting in language in those contracts so that that way they can play games later. Like, you know, I mean, I'm not saying yeah. our contract was great. You know, I'm, I'm no, I not with it, but I'm saying, I think that's one of the things that people don't like about lawyers is that they put together these things. You can't read it. It might as well be Egyptian hieroglyphics. Right. And now all of a sudden this is going to control our future.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things I'll use you as an example, one of the things that I like most about dealing with someone like you is that you're very bright. You know your business and it's so much easier to represent someone who is very bright and knows their business because then when I draft the contract you look at it you know exactly what it says you understand it and you know you say oh wait we need to change this or we need to do this and that just makes it that much easier for me there are times when you know i have clients that aren't as uh, uh familiar with their business or their uh, or you know particular aspects of their business and then that makes it more difficult for me because i'm trying to protect them you're
1: trying to see the future to say where there could be conflict right. when you don't even really know what exactly they could be selling or the type of arrangement that they could be in with another
0: person. Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, generally you write a con, I mean, I've done it so long now that, you know, and there are provisions in contracts that what I call the standard, some of the standard language that I want to make sure that protects you. But that's my job to be aware of that and say, okay, you're going to be doing this, this and this. And I want to make sure that You know, they can't come back and say because of what Vance said, you know, we incurred damages and we're not going to let that. I'm not going to let that happen to you. Uh, And there's a a number of other sort of boilerplate provisions that you might say, well, why is pages three and four on here? And I say, well, it's don't worry about it. It's it's just it's there. It's needed. Just take my word for it
1: okay so so you know you, you think about trying to see into the future and writing down for these uh, eventualities or things that could happen and you're reading every word do you read every word when something pops up on the computer and it says I agree to and it's you know because you want
0: to use this well, that's a good or question whatever? yeah that's a good question uh, there are a number of agreements leases asset purchase agreements stock purchase agreements. Subordination. I mean, I could go on and on. I already know what they say generally. Okay. It's not like I skim through them. I'm a bit obsessive when it comes to that. I read it word for word, but I also know where what the important parts of that are because I've done it so many times. And I can go, if somebody said to me, okay, you've only got five minutes to review this 60-page asset purchase agreement, I'd say, okay. I could at least go to the parts that I know are extremely important, but I don't do that. I mean, I read it.
1: But, but so, but when you're getting a new version of Microsoft Office and it's got that thing that you could scroll for, I have to
0: be—I have to admit—I do not read those. Should should people be reading those? I suppose they should, but they're not going to change them. I guess so. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're either you, you know. I'm a little bit guilty of that. Uh, when it comes to my own personal stuff, I understand, you know, that the likelihood of anything happening is so minimal that, uh, oftentimes my wife, who's a registered nurse, she, <laughs> I, I let her read that stuff. And then she'll come to me with questions cause she's really, really bright. And, and, uh, and, and she almost knows what to look for now. Cause she's, we've been married 43 years, still my best friend. And, uh, And she knows me like the like the back of her own hand. So uh, she knows and I and I her. uh, So um, it's almost like we know what each other's thinking. So you have these really
1: close relationships with a lot of the people that you do legal work with. I do. What kind of challenge does that present when you're trying to think about writing up a contract form to protect it? I mean, you can't protect people from everything. If you do, then people won't want to work, work with them necessarily. What, what goes into thinking about how to protect somebody that you care about legally?
0: Well, you do the same things you do for anybody. You, you do the best job you can to protect them. You try to negotiate the best terms you can. Um, In most cases, when it comes to business decisions, I tell my clients, I don't make business decisions unless you ask me to give you advice on it or you don't understand it. And you'd like me to weigh in on it, you know, say the value and say somebody wants to sell their company. And and I usually say, well, do you have an idea what it's worth and have you done an evaluation or have you had a third party do it? Have you talked to your CPA about it? What method did you use to value it? And you know, most of the time they have something in mind and they've had, they've gone through the process. But if they haven't, then I will help them do that um, because I've, you know, I've been involved in it so long. I'm not a business evaluator. I'm not an accountant, but, you know, I can read a financial statement and I've been through the process enough to, you know, kind of guide them along. And and if I don't have a, a good feeling about my particular conclusion or my thoughts on it i can refer them to somebody that that can help them as an an expert but in terms of getting back to your question about you know representing people that i'm close to it's the same thing i do the best job i can and i tell them look this is not foolproof you know humans are involved in the in these transactions and i don't i don't try to make excuses up front but i say you know uh, this is the best i can do it should be fine but nothing's foolproof.
1: Can you think of a time when the law didn't work the way that you thought that it should have or could have? Oh, sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, I i don't by calling myself a litigator is a big stretch. But early in my career, I did try some cases, tried a number of cases, particularly in bankruptcy court. Those are administrative trials. they there's still trials. The rules of evidence are in play and all that. And I'm comfortable in the courtroom, I think, if I brushed up on the rules of evidence, which would not be easy to do because you got, you know, it's something, you know, people that go in the courtroom every day, it's easy for them. But uh, I've always been comfortable in a courtroom when I, when I was younger. And uh, I had, I had three cases in the, in the Missouri Eastern district court of appeals. And I remember one case, you know, that's where you argue in front of a panel. It's not a trial you're arguing on appeal. So you're uh, you know, there's no witnesses. You're just arguing the points on appeal. And And the
1: panel is a group of judges or they're they're regular people?
0: No, they're a group of judges. No, it's, it's, there's, there's trial judges and then there's appellate judges. Okay. Okay. And in Missouri, there's the associate circuit court and then the circuit court. Those are trial level judges. And then there's the courts of appeal, like the Eastern district court of appeal, the Western district courts of appeal. Those are those are your first level of appellate courts and that's usually where it stops and then there's a supreme court after that uh, missouri supreme court um never argued a case in missouri supreme court but i had a case in front of the missouri eastern district court of appeals and it was it wasn't the full what they call en banc which is all of the judges it was they usually it's a panel of three and i was I'm still convinced that i was right but they ruled against me so you know yeah there are times when i how, think, did,
1: how did it go what happened
0: well i mean they just uh, it was it was a complicated case and uh i felt like the trial court uh did not rule correctly so i we appealed it and uh, uh you know without getting into the details of the case it was just i just felt that my legal arguments were very strong and they clearly disagreed with me.
1: <laughs> How is it to keep an attitude like that? You know, it's, it's funny because we live in a world where there's sports, you know, you, you have a start time and an end time. Whoever's got the highest points at the end wins a game. Mm-hmm. And then you've got business, which is it, there is no end time. It just keeps going, right? You either right. succeed or you don't. But with law, it's a little bit of a mixture of that, right? Mm-hmm. There is an end point. Oh, yeah. There's a guilty or innocent uh, or a…
0: winner or uh, loser. Winner or
1: loser. But then you've just got to keep going. Uh, I guess my question is mostly based around how does it feel to be in a system where sometimes you're right, but, the, but, the, but they went against you?
0: It's like anything else. I mean, it's… You know, I, I played, you know, basketball… A very competitive level and you know, we won some great games, won some big games. We lost some games that we should have won. And, you know, you learn to live with both and you try to keep as even keel as you can because you've got another game in three or four days. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a lot like that, you know, uh, it's not a whole lot different than that. You just, you just move on, you know, and you, it's not like you don't care you just you just have to move on and and deal with the next excuse me the next problem
1: Have you seen court cases where a wrong was righted in a, in a oh sure. found
0: way oh sure I mean you know I can't remember specifically but yeah I mean I've yeah, I've seen cases where a judge will come in and say, okay you know it's not so much that a wrong that the wrong thing happened at some other level of court. It's that something wrong and something bad is happening um, prior to getting there, and and the courts straighten it out. And uh, that's a good feeling. I mean, we do have the best system in the world. It's by no means perfect, but it is the best legal system in the world.
1: And what are the things that you were surprised about when you when you became a part of the legal system? Right. The, the, I mean, like there's the image that people have. This is the way the courts work because they either watched Perry Mason growing up or right. they saw Law and Order. But how is it different than what people see on television?
0: It's a lot different. I mean, I'd say ninety-five plus percent of cases that are filed in court never go to trial; they get settled. Um, and so people think that if a lot of people just have this perception that if you're a lawyer, you're in court all day long, that it couldn't be further from the truth. In, in my case, I'm never in court anymore because I do corporate and business law. And so I'm in my office. I'm meeting with clients. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not glamorous. I mean, I, I've always told people practicing law or being a lawyer is no different than any other job. It's, it's a job and you try to do the best you can. And I know that there have been times in the past when, when we hire associates and, this kind of segues into my feeling about being a lawyer is just, there's nothing glamorous about it. It's, it's, you know, I try to do the best job I can. I try to help people, try to help my clients. But I, when we hired associates, uh, in our, in my, my firm, you know, I'm usually the last one to meet with them. And, and I trust my partners uh, immensely if they think someone's great. So, when when I meet with them, I, I usually tell them I just have two rules. Uh, one, answer your phone,
1: huh.
0: and if you can't answer your phone, return the calls as soon as you can, because people want you know they want response, they want a response, and they oh
1: that's good. No, that's I mean really it's, good. it's
0: it's it's just true, and I've I've conducted my myself in that manner ever since I started practicing law, because when someone calls you and they want to talk to you they usually have an issue or a problem and you know they're concerned and you know you try to put them at ease and what I've what I've always done is say okay now after I meet with them okay now this is my problem you don't need to worry about it anymore and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but uh it's really true and because they're scared they don't know you know
1: oh 100% what to I mean, thank, anybody you know. that I know that deals with a lawyer that has one they if if they if their complaint is he doesn't call me back. No, oh, that, that, you're in a bad spot. Well, that.
0: there's a, the number one category of, of complaints to the, uh, to the Missouri bar on lawyers is not returning their phone calls or answering their emails. It's a number one complaint that's filed against lawyers by far. And it's just common courtesy besides being, you know, professional. It's just common courtesy to get back to people. Um, the other rule that I tell them is you treat everybody the same as if as you would me or anyone else in this office you know just because I'm a senior partner in this firm and you you want you think you should treat me with respect I'm no different than the guy that comes in at night that grabs our trash cans and throws it away he's got a job to do what he does is just as important what we do it's just a different category of work and you treat that person with the same respect and and dignity that you'd want to that you'd want to be treated with, because that's really important to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, somebody else might be putting me on if they had said that, but there is a clear line between the way that you treat people and why you know as many people as now, you do. That that um, is where did you learn that? My
0: mom and dad, I was yeah you know, wonderful parents. Uh, uh, my dad was best man in my wedding, as a matter of fact. No and, kidding. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah, he, 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 I miss him dearly. He's, he died 20, 25 years ago, and I still think of him often. I still draw on his wisdom. He was a wonderfully, incredibly bright guy. Uh, never went to college. Well, he went three semesters to college right during the Depression and had to drop out because he, ran, he couldn't eat. He didn't have any money. Uh, my mom and dad were wonderful people. And uh, my dad went into the insurance business eventually and was successful. And they were so generous in, with their, with their money and their time. And I just, they were great examples. Uh, And as were my siblings and uh, it just makes so much sense to treat people with respect Uh, unless they disrespect you or something like that. But then, you know, you just try to avoid them, but it's real. I mean, it's, it's not hard. It's, you know, it's everybody's the same. Nobody's better than anyone else. You know, it's, we're all in this together. And, uh, and I'm not like trying to be Pollyanna here. That's just,
1: well, it's stoic in a way, right? It's, it's saying, um, if you don't put people up in a hierarchy of who's better than the other one, then you have to start saying like, I just have to treat whoever is in front of me, with as much of presence of mind as as I can. One of the things that's um, unique about you, Kevin, is uh, I've never known anybody that is as regularly... I mean, I I don't mean for this to sound too simplistic, but is as regularly happy as you are. (laughs) you're, You're generally... You know the life of a party. I can remember one time uh, going out to dinner with you and a group of people, and the next day being like, "Well, Kevin must have had a lot to drink last night. He was really the life of the party." And then, and then coming to realize, you don't actually drink. You're just that happy. You're just (laughs) that energetic and excited. Yeah, is that something that you work at? Is it just your natural? No, I
0: mean I don't. Not necessarily. I I just enjoy people and i do i don't drink i quit you know i slowed down i never my wife and i never drank a lot but and then when my kids started driving uh you know i my wife and i didn't stick our heads in the sand we knew that there was a possibility they'd be at parties and there'd be alcohol there so uh, our rule was if you have the car and you've been drinking you call us and or you call me and I will come pick you up.
1: Did any of them ever take you up on it?
0: It happened, uh, I think, two or three times. Only happened two or three times. And no questions asked. No, You don't get in trouble. Just, you know, we want you to be safe. And
1: Was so, it hard to show up and see your kid drunk and not, no, and not say no,
0: anything? No, no. I mean, it. you know, I was a kid too once, so I understand. So then I, you know, we, I, I wouldn't drink on the weekends. So I never drank during the week anyway. And, you know, I wouldn't come home and have a cocktail. And so, and then when I didn't, we weren't going out on the weekends and for dinner, I wouldn't drink because I knew I wanted to be sober, or, you know, pick up the kids. And then, and then it just slowed down, slowed down, slowed down. So, you know, I just, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years ago, I just stopped all together and I don't even really know why. Occasionally, Julie and I, if we're out to dinner or something and she has a glass of wine, I might have a glass of wine but I can't remember the last time I did actually but
1: is it hard when you're at a do you have to consciously think because if I went to a business dinner uh, I mean it's not like I'm I'm drink like overindulging but if everybody's ordering wine at the table and I didn't it it would be it would be um, a sacrifice for me. At least I don't at I,
0: I could care less. Really? It doesn't even now doesn't even phase me. So I,
1: you don't have the pull at all to be like, oh, just if I could just n- taste that sweet red wine is. No, nah, stay.
0: no. Nah, Interesting. Not, not at all. Not at all. You know, if people if people are going to think something less of me because I don't have a drink. That's on them.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's the, the getting back to the original point. I mean, one of the most interesting parts about you is that you have this gregarious, happy personality. Yeah. I don't think most people even recognize And that's not something you have to cultivate. You you don't sit there nah. and say, Kevin, you're going to be happy to know looking no. into the mirror and trying to talk yourself up. You're just naturally this way. You know,
0: I'm, I'm I'm lucky. I had a great childhood, uh, wonderful uh, college uh athletic career um a, a fabulous wife who is still my best friend wonderful kids i mean i've been blessed with just many many things and now three grandchildren i can be quite goofy and my kids will tell me all the time dad you're so goofy so and,
1: to, this makes me think of you know if if i'm a regular person and i get uh, a legal letter you know something that somebody's going to bring a suit against me yeah. My stomach's going to drop and I'm going to be worried about this at,
0: at an extreme level. Yeah. Are you that way? No. Do, you do So why not? Because no, I've seen it so many times and I know not it's not like I have a crystal ball, but I can I can see a letter like that, talk to the person and ask him what the circumstances are and say, you know, OK, this is really not something to be concerned with or we we should do this, this and this and this should resolve it. But certainly, sometimes they get letters that they should be concerned. There's no question. I mean, you know, absolutely. And you know, my job is just to assess the situation and try to put them at ease and say, okay, here's here's what I think is going to happen. I can't, I can't, you know, promise that. But you know, here your here are your options, and here's what here's the way we go. You know, it's not like I can look at a letter they get and say, oh don't worry about it. So, not you know, yeah, you know, take everything seriously. So, this came about very quickly. You were
1: you were kind enough to come <laughs> by the studios right at the at the last minute, super early in the morning. But uh in doing a little bit of research um came across an article about a time that I believe it was an article about you and the way that you were able to be a lawyer for people when they really really needed it do you is so i don't i don't know is that a story you're okay with telling sure, you and probably sure, better than i do sure you know i'm talking about the
0: adoption one right, right so
1: so what happened there
0: well um the most satisfaction i get out of practicing law and and all the experience that i've had now and and um the context i've made is is helping people when they really need help and can't afford it and um this particular instance this was Probably the most satisfying uh, thing I've ever been involved in in my legal career. And it was about 25 years ago. And uh, Mark Vitter, who who actually started the St. Louis Business Journal uh, way back when, uh, he still writes a column called Reflections every week in the St. Louis Business Journal. It's on, you know, court toward the back and it's, and, and he's a, he's an incredibly bright guy and, um, just very, very successful and just a great person. And we were talking one day and, you know, we became very good friends and I was telling him about this particular thing that that happened. And it was, and the next thing I know, a couple of weeks later, there's this article in the paper. He didn't use names, which I'm glad, very glad about, but, uh, there was a couple who was going through a private adoption and uh, my brother, John, my oldest brother, what is a private adoption? It's where there's, there's a social worker involved and they have uh, a, uh, you know, the birth mother um, does not want to place the child in a, in an adoption, you know, home. They just, they want to seek somebody out who is, who they meet and, and, feel comfortable, you know, you know, having their child adopted by. And, uh, so this couple had used my brother, John in the past. My brother, John's passed away now, but he has three adopted children. And, and so he did this initial adoption for him and right at the, I mean, literally the day before the birth mother changed her mind and wanted to keep the baby, oh. which, which happens. And, and she can do that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, the couple was devastated, just devastated. My brother was devastated. And so fast forward six, eight months, a year, there's another opportunity for them. And my brother, John, came to me and said, Kevin, I, I can't do this. This was really difficult for me last time. You're going to have to handle this. And I said, OK, fine. So we went through difficult the
1: difficult because he had grown close with the family. And had well, yeah, had to deliver yeah, deliver some pretty bad
0: news. news. And, and he has he had three adopted children himself. And it was just. It was just hard on him and you know he said i just would prefer that you know and i knew the couple as well so went through the process and um uh, the baby was born in rolla missouri and uh the social worker and i drove to rolla the night before the the hearing there had to be a hearing to to terminate the uh, father's parental rights um and uh, he didn't show up for the hearing, and that which was fine. He he knew about it, but he was fine with the adoption. So we had to go there the night before, and I had to go to a lawyer friend of mine's law office in Rolla and, and type up some you know short documents and and uh, a proposed court order terminating parental rights. And then the social worker and I went to the court the next morning. And there was a hearing and the birth mother was there. She had had the baby. She was out of the hospital. The baby was still in the hospital for not for medical reasons, but because of the adoption. Mm -hmm. The birth mother was wonderful. I mean, she said, you know, I've got three children. I just can't afford it. And I want this child to have the best life it can. And you know, wow. Yeah. It was really she, I was so uh, happy to meet the birth mother and the social worker told me, you'll be surprised, you know, this birth mother was just fantastic. I mean, uh, I had so much respect for her and um, and, uh, she was at the hearing and we, you know, put the father's, we had the father's affidavit that he was consenting to the termination of parental rights and the judge read it and signed the order uh, of adoption. And the social worker and I left the court, drove to the hospital in Raleigh, went up to the uh, the um, maternity ward where the baby was and handed the court order. They knew that we were coming into the court order, to the head nurse. And they went in, got the baby, a, a little girl, and handed the baby to us. And it was at a time when I had young children. And so I had car seats in my car, an infant seat. <laughs> and we went downstairs. We went, we left the hospital, went down to the parking lot, got in my car, put the baby in the car seat, drove back to St. Louis, drove right to the couple's house and handed them their new baby. And it was tears all around. It was just fantastic. A good day to be an attorney. It was the best. And we didn't, and I didn't charge them because I, like, you know, We don't. I. I would never charge for something like that. And it was just, just wonderful. And it was. I'll never forget it. And they just recently sent me a picture of the of now the twenty, I guess twenty five year old.
1: Oh my gosh, it was twenty five years ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. And she's just. She's great. She's doing great. She graduated college, has a good job, and she's wonderful, wonderful. Just the best of of anything I've ever been able to be involved in being have the privilege of being involved in so how do you go from having that level of a
1: of a high you know because you're getting to do such a satisfying thing to then
0: working on contracts day and you know i mean out. you have to you have to earn a living so you know you just like i said being a lawyer is not glamorous necessarily it's just it's just work and you, you know you have a, a certain skill set that you use uh to earn a living and to you know help other people and 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 try to make it as enjoyable as you can and the biggest the biggest thing is enjoy work, who who you work with and right now at St. Louis Bank what a what a tremendous group of people i mean i look forward to when i leave here i'm heading over there i look forward to going there because great people for
1: people that don't normally touch the legal system mm-hmm. and they're going out to find an attorney because they Want to start an LLC or let's say they got a letter that scares them. Somebody's going to sue them for something. How should they know whether or not their attorney is any good?
0: That's a good question Um, because I think the general public, if they haven't had any involvement with attorneys, which is most of the general public, hopefully they haven't had the need to have involvement with an attorney or the system. I think that uh, they don't know They don't know. Most people think every attorney is just like every other attorney and they all, they know everything about anything there is to know in the law, which is absolutely not the case. You know, that's why if a client comes to me or a person comes to me with a particular situation that's not in my wheelhouse, I have a number of attorney friends that I know and trust, Uh, I can refer them to them.
1: So then, the advice would be find an attorney that you know and trust, and then say who's the best at this type of thing.
0: Yeah, or or ask someone. You know, if you don't know any attorneys, ask around your friends. Who who have you used that you like? You know that type of thing, and, and until you find someone that you know that you trust, trusted this person, and then you know go from there. But.
1: How many times of the attorney not returning your phone call should you have before you start getting worried? The first time. The first time. Yeah, you know,
0: you you return phone calls. It's that simple. You you know, you don't just blow somebody off.
1: Why is it that you and I both are fully aware that attorneys don't return phone calls? I mean, I know you had said this is the most common complaint, but it, it would seem to me that are they either overworked or they make so much money... That any one call doesn't make make a difference. Like, what's going on there? That that's what happens. I,
0: I don't think it's the money thing. Um, it, I think it's you know because a lot of attorneys don't make so much money. I mean, they there are some very very successful attorneys, but there's a lot of attorneys that grind it out every day for you know not a lot of money. Oh, that's uh, interesting. The yeah.
1: my, the perception. Is that if you're an attorney, no. you're 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 making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, and I
0: doing mean pretty well. Y- you have to work a long time to get there, unless you go to work for a big law firm that immediately pays you hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and even though you don't know anything about the practice of law, uh, but that's what it takes to get the top students. Uh, but there's still a lot of attorneys out there that are grinding it out for fifty, seventy five.
1: Still a good living, but but not not if everybody is expecting that because you're an attorney, you're you're making a
0: lot of money. Right. Right. But uh, most attorneys would say, well, I I was too busy or uh, whatever. But I think it's. It can't. No one's too busy to return a phone call now attorneys that are in trial all day or if I'm in a meeting, you know, a meeting all day and I, you know, but I always check my messages, especially in our society today where, you know, we've got instant contact with people.
1: Yeah, you can even read your voicemail. I don't want phone calls, but if I get a phone call and somebody leaves me a voicemail, I'm just reading it. I'm not going to
0: listen to that thing. Right. Right. And, you know, but she, it's just common courtesy. And, you know, my wife is, been so supportive i mean i work uh often late at the office and then i'll come home and i'll i don't usually work at home but i will look at my messages and sometimes return calls from home especially if it's someone that i you know haven't spoken with that day and i need to get back to them. and she's been so supportive uh throughout my entire career um which makes it a lot easier you know She's not calling me at five o'clock every day saying, when are you going to be home? Never has. And she gets it. Um not always like it, but she gets it and she supports me. So that's been helpful.
1: So this is not your area of expertise, but because you've had a marriage that's gone uh, as successfully it has, but you've also been around the, the block. What do you think of the current state of divorce law in, in uh, either the state of Missouri or the United States?
0: Well, I think the, the law is fine. It's, I think it's designed to be as equitable as possible to the respective parties involved in a divorce. And I used to do divorces. I did them for about, oh, you did. Yeah. For about two years. And then I, I said, I'm never doing one again because I was involved in a child custody battle. And I, I was like, this is, this is, I don't want to deal with this because in, in those circumstances, at the end of the day, my lawyer, I mean, my client didn't like me didn't like uh, her ex-husband uh, didn't like the judge didn't like the other attorney or her husband's attorney and it was the same true on the other side no one no one gets out of that that type of situation with any sort of satisfaction or relief or it's just it just ends and then you go on and you know And that's the last one I ever handled. They're
1: so messy. I mean, like they can be, they can be well. And and when you add in a child and then and then and then on top of that, the money that goes along with the child. Right. Right. So if if, uh, I've had friends that when the child was put in primary custody of one person, the other person that's not there is now paying a, a significant portion yeah. of their income towards right. that child, yeah. and it, so the, it's right. it's a it's a weird thing because a child becomes an income acquiring asset
0: right? exactly, and you know it's it creates bitterness, you know, and I like you said, I've been so fortunate, you know, four children that are the end all for me and 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 my wife, um, but you know, a child going through a divorce, you know, they're the real victims. That's why the parents have to work really, really hard to make certain that the child is as well adjusted as possible under those circumstances. And it it can happen. They can do it. It's just human nature that they often don't because they're bitter with their, you know, their former spouse. And
1: And it bleeds into everything because it's so catastrophic on your life. It tears apart your personal finances. It tears apart yep. whatever, whatever caused the divorce. Yeah, that's, that's, yep. that's rough. And so no more divorce law for you. Nah, yeah, a
0: long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. No more.
1: So completely changing gears. Yep. Um, but so you are legal counsel for a bank. And right now the state of Missouri is uh, in process of having medical marijuana And so there are people that are that are uh, looking to invest. But if it's illegal on the federal level to have um, to to make money from the sale of cannabis, what are companies going to do about where they put their money and how are banks going to address this? Because there's a lot of money to be made there, potentially, Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of business that's coming online. But Mm -hmm. at the same time. Banks are not known for wanting to break the rules and being on the opposite side of the federal
0: government. Right. Well, you've hit it on the head, Vance. I mean, it is a it is a real conundrum right now for banks, uh, for the Missouri Division of Finance trying to write guidelines um, uh, because you've got, I think, 40 states now that have legalized marijuana, either recreationally and or uh for medical purposes and you had 40 states in the union that have some form of legalization of marijuana. And you've got the federal statute still say that the cultivation distribution sale of marijuana is a federal crime.
1: Schedule, schedule one, right? Like the, the top, this is high it's, priority it's enforcement.
0: A, a, yeah. I mean, it's a crime. And so then you've got all these ancillary, but, but the department of justice has not ever tried to, you know, charge any of these that I'm aware of, charge any of these uh, dispensaries in Colorado, for instance, or in California. Oh, that's interesting. So
1: you've got, you don't have rules set up for banks to be able to do this legally. You don't have like a, hey, this is the path to doing it. And yet... Somebody is it's some banks must be involved in this yeah. because money's moving around. But the Justice Department has not enforced those rules. I didn't realize.
0: that. No, I mean, not, I mean, the first line of enforcement would be against the dispensaries themselves or the cultivators, not the banks. Well, I mean, it could be it, It's it's sort of bifurcated. The banks are more concerned about the regulators and how they're going to handle it. And I would think. But, you know, when when the state has when a state has legalized. The activity that is occurring, but the Fed feds could come in and charge you with a crime under federal law for selling a drug. You've got a real conflict there, and so the Department of Justice just has chosen not to do it. And I think it's—I mean, I don't know if they're ever going to. That's that's the real issue. And then you've got the federal regulators, the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, you know, the OCC, you know, who regulate banks. And are they going to say that that's aiding and abetting a federal crime because you're allowing them to, you know, deposit money in your bank or and so forth and so on? And are they going to charge uh, equipment manufacturers or selling cultivation equipment to these companies with aiding and abetting? Um, you know, the, the, it, the list goes on and on. And, and what do you think? It doesn't sound like it's it to it, 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 it sounds implausible that they would do that but there'd be a whole lot of people suddenly uh, on the wrong
1: side of the well, law well, and yeah, to I jail mean,
0: there'd be 40 states that would file an injunction action to stop the federal government from doing that and you'd have this huge monstrosity of a lawsuit that would you know either get settled or ultimately you know decided by a circuit court of appeal or the supreme court right now there's a there's a law that is you know winding its way through congress um that would allow banks to bank uh marijuana related businesses without the fear of being in violation of any you know banking regulations or any federal criminal statutes
1: and that's winding its way through federal yeah yeah federal level? through congress yeah
0: yeah it has to be at the federal level because the states doesn't matter what they say at right the federal well, the, level. well the states who've legalized it they've already decided the issue. So the federal government in terms of, you know, uh, allowing this to, to be, uh, a workable situation for, uh, these businesses where they're operating legally in the state of Missouri or whatever state they're operating in. Uh, they're the ones that have to fix the issue. And there's a bill pending right now. It's not pending. I think it's, I think it might be in committee. Have you read it? Uh yeah, I mean it's it's very straightforward. It just says it, I mean, in very simple terms it says that banks, I mean, this is a really oversimplification, that you know, if you bank marijuana related businesses, it's not a federal crime. Okay? And, and and it's not against any federal banking regulations, which would really take the heat off of everybody because we've spent at St. Louis Bank, an inordinate amount of time trying to accommodate our customers while at the same time not violating any regulations. And one thing about St. Louis Bank is we're very, very acutely aware of and compliant with federal regulations <laughs> and 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 with, and with the Missouri Division of Finance. I mean, it's, it's we, good to we, hear
1: your lawyer say that. Well, that's no, I mean it,
0: it, it. I mean that's just the way it is and it's the way it should be. You know, we wanna be strictly compliant. This is such a gray area. Um it's uh it's really frustrating from my perspective because it's a federal issue and they should fix it, you know. So
1: And when do you think that legislation will get
0: I have no idea, Vance. I mean it's
1: what are what are banks out in Colorado and and Nevada doing right now? My impression was that co-ops had popped up and there were like a different form. There's of a private. That yeah, wasn't, it's it's right. not FDIC insured. Correct. So they don't have the same regulatory environment. Right. If, they're, yeah, so those if you're not. Up.
0: Yeah. If you don't buy insurance from the FDIC, you're not regulated by the FDIC. Yeah. There's there's some private. I'll call them private banks in quotes that have that have popped up that say we will hold your money protect your money but it's not the it's they're not part of the banking system they don't get the protection of you know the the fdic protection and if it goes under you know they, you know so it it needs to be fixed the thought i mean i saw pictures early on when colorado legalized marijuana you'd see people show up with satchels full of cash at the at the State Department of Revenue to pay their taxes, you know, and that's in and of itself a dangerous situation.
1: Well, so I lived in Mendocino County, which uh, is, um, I, are you familiar with it? It's in no. California. Uh-uh. So Mendocino is the place where people that think Berkeley is too conservative, they they moved to Mendocino. And I was up there working at a community public radio station, and they called this the Emerald Triangle. It was a part of three counties Lake County, Humboldt and Mendocino, where there was huge amounts of marijuana grown. Now, I was a Midwestern kid. I couldn't even have told you what a marijuana plant looked like. And then all of a sudden you're working in community public radio. It's all over the place. Mm-hmm. And they had medical licenses there. So this was this was 10 years ago. And uh, for pledge drive. We, you know, normally you're, you're like, yeah. you know, call us up and make a donation. Was this an NPR like, station? It was, it mm-hmm. was, a, it was a public radio station and, um, people would drop by bags of cash and I, like nothing I'd ever seen before. Yeah. You, you would open it up and there would be just wads of $10 bills and they reeked of marijuana. <laughs> and so, you know, like I'm, I don't know, 23 or 24 years old being like, what in the world is going on? Yeah. But uh, it's because their whole business was done in cash.
0: I mean, I'm not a user. Uh, I mean, I've I've tried it and, and I've even inhaled uh, <laughs> when I was younger. Uh, but, uh, you know, it has no special appeal to me one way or the other. Uh, but it's just absolutely ludicrous that it's not legalized on a federal level because it's just I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. I mean. It's almost, you know, analogous to prohibition. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, you know.
1: Well, and then that brings up an interesting question with banking is the people that really did well right after prohibition were the ones that were set to go to deliver product. You know, what? we're in St. Louis, Missouri. So Anheuser-Busch ready to go right as prohibition ends and then they get off to the races and they're one of the few you know, huge companies that gets born out of that. Is this the same thing happen in cannabis? Is it whoever's ready to go right when those regulations drop?
0: I don't think that's the case. I think, um, uh, you know, what I hear is that they're, you know, big pharma is ready to sort of take over the small operations and pay them big money to get them out. um, which makes sense, yeah. Makes sense. Right? Yeah, it makes you're, sense you're trying yeah. to
1: grow a, a chemical, and and you want people that for are medical doing-
0: use, yeah. yeah. And so big pharma. Uh, I don't know about the the cigarette companies. I have no idea what the deal is there because I think you know mar- um, marijuana can take. You know, I think they have they have edible marijuana, you know, candies and all that. So I don't know if if uh, big tobacco's involved in it or not.
1: It'll be interesting because I, I think we're in a unique place in St. Louis. I've said this many times before in that we have more plant biologists per capita here than in any other place wow. in the world. And uh, at its core, cannabis is about can you breed a plant to to give you the the psychological effects that you want and mm-hmm. the you know all, all of the phenotypes as they call mm-hmm. them that you want the smells and the terpenes and these other things. And uh, I think that there is a huge chance that when Missouri legalizes it, you will see a uh, a big upswing in the number of companies that will be doing
0: uh, plant
1: breeding around cannabis here.
0: Interesting. Well, you know, you know, you have a very strong background in that area. So in plants, would... not cannabis. Yes. <laughs> but yeah. I didn't mean. I didn't no, mean no. that. <laughs> <laughs> So, you would know more than I about that, but it certainly makes sense what you said i mean um, so uh I'm sure that uh given your background uh with bear slash Monsanto, you you probably have a a pretty good idea of of where that might head
1: I think that uh it it's a very interesting time to be with a company, a bank that's saying. We want to serve our customers. We know that medical is coming in. The state has announced that they are comfortable with this. And then you you uh, you look at the federal and there's regulations and what's going to happen. To me, the thing that I hope happens is that we just let the rules go without spiking the ball. Meaning, just just don't make it so only a few people right. can be really really successful and you knock everybody else out. Just just open it up, let and relax the rules. And frankly. I like the idea that it's gone state by state because then you have all these little incubators, all these different rules. And how are we going to do it in this state versus that state? And you can see what's the best what's the best way to do that. And that actually brings me to a question. Mm -hmm. Our federalist system, you know, is set up so that you have local municipal control and then you have the county and then you have the state and then you have the federal level. And that's true on adjudicating contracts on is, is it working the way that you think is optimal right now? Are we are, are enough rules being decided on the local level versus on the state or on the federal level? You know,
0: I think so because I think to an extent, I mean, first of all, there's too many rules and regulations, Uh, federal state, everything Uh, and a lot of businesses say it stifles them. Okay. And to an extent, It does, but at the heart of it is, you know, the rules and regs are designed to, at least in theory, to not only keep controls in place, but also to make sure that it's an even playing field. I mean, that's that's a very broad perspective, but that's generally what they're designed to do. Now, you know, sometimes they go way too far. You know, and and uh, and it stifles business, it stifles growth, it stifles mm-hmm. you know capex. You know, it's it's you know it's it 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 can be stifling, but from a local perspective, you know, the local you know municipalities pretty much stay in their lane with z- planning and zoning regulations and traffic and you know noise regulations. I mean, they don't try not to you know you know. In, you know, get involved in in more, uh, I guess, substantive issues that the state would normally get involved. But you also have to remember if if there's a conflict between a municipal law and a state law, state's going to win every time. You know, well, state state law controls. If there's a conflict between a federal law and a state law, state law would control. You know, the the my experience. I mean, with, federal law I, would control.
1: My experience with Monsanto. Um, made me think about the law a little bit differently and and really on both sides of it so on the one hand i saw that activists right they would come out and they would say we don't know if gmos are safe we should we should regulate these more so they'd go to the politicians they would demand more regulation policymaker says all right well i want to you know there's people out here shouting outside of my office I'm going to go make laws to make it so we need more testing. Mm -hmm. So you go from maybe four years or eight years of testing to now 12 years of testing. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is when you make it a law that if you want to release a a new genetically engineered crop, um, but you have to have 12 years of testing, each one of those years is $10 million. Wow! So you're tacking on Mm. all the way up to $120 million worth of regulatory costs, which means only the biggest players can play the game. So those activists, in many ways, a lot of people don't realize this, did the work of the large corporations because you have regulatory capture. You have it now so that only those big
0: players. Well, does that does that? I guess I'll ask you the question. Does that cost trickle down to the consumer then?
1: Uh, ultimately, you know, and, and I think that you, it's really difficult for people to say, well now I've, because there's not that many genetically engineered crops that go directly into the grocery store. So it's more in like the feed that goes to cattle or pigs. And ultimately you're feeling the cost of that, right? We we could be feeding pigs and chickens and, and cows for a cheaper price than, Mm -hmm. than what we are right now, Mm -hmm. but it's so diffuse that hmm. that people people don't feel like it, but at at its core, it really holds back our economy hmm. because you have this large system that if it didn't have these controls on it, if you had more competitors in the market, it would make these large companies have to go faster. Right that, now, they have six competitors, four competitors. Well, they, has they, that they're, argument
0: they're, been made to the uh, to the regulators?
1: Sure, but but herein you have the cross purposes, right? You actually have the activists and the large corporations. They end up getting on the same side on this because the large corporations get regulatory capture. They love it.
0: But I mean, I, I was going to say, so they actually the large corporations actually support the longer testing period. Well, because, of course,
1: I mean, you know, I think they, they, they I think that they would say. You, you might have their scientists and some of their front facing people saying, hey, we want to have reasonable regulation. Let's do this right. But they want just enough to knock out their competitors and not a dollar more.
0: That but that's in- their business interest, right? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Uh, so you've got the large corporations, philosophic- not philosophically, but financially aligning themselves with the activists.
1: Absolutely. And so this was the craziest thing that you would see from the activist world, is it was like, you don't even realize you're helping the very people you think you're fighting against. In <laughs> fact, if you were the large corporations, they didn't do this as far as I can tell, right? This, but if you were going to create a conspiracy theory, you would say the best thing that ever happened to Monsanto was the march against Monsanto. Wow. All the way up until yeah. a $2 billion lawsuit on Roundup. So that worked out real well until... Until eventually you have a situation where the, uh, the public is so afraid of these giant corporations that a jury awards a two billion dollar settlement for, um, for for a person that sued sued them for having Roundup
0: cause cancer. I don't I haven't followed that. I mean, obviously heard the, the verdict or the judgment or whatever. But has that been resolved yet?
1: No. And it'll be a while. I mean, some of those have been reduced. Uh, so the first one was originally a, the first court that ruled against Monsanto said it was $78 million and the judge came in and said you can't make punitive damages so there's there's the difference between compensatory and punitive right. compensatory you know this but yep. the compensatory saying this wrong happened and we need to cover this person's medical bills um, so you're responsible for that and then you have punitive right. damages like hey we're going to punish you to make sure you don't right. do this again right. and they on the first one $78 million, people thought Wow, that's a huge number. That, and yeah, then a few weeks later, there was a two billion yeah. dollar uh, punitive case. And so that this is all. Gonna- so is the
0: two billion dollar. I mean, I'm sure Monsanto appealed that. I don't I just don't know where it stands. I haven't yep. followed it. Well
1: and they are in the process of appealing and then they have more cases going. There's thirteen thousand cases or oh, something Lord. like that. So
0: I didn't realize so it. the
1: the and they're all over the United States. There's some in California, there's some in in St. Louis, uh over in Madison County, over in Edward uh, A lot of lawyers Edward, making money. A lot of lawyers making money. Hmm. And and um the 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 saddest part about the whole thing is people don't realize that the fight is now not over the science because when you get into those cases mm-hmm. you have a jury that's there right 12 people That they're anywhere on that bell distribution of their understanding of the scientific method and how this works. And so they are sitting there and the side that says Roundup causes cancer has their expert. And the side that says it doesn't cause cancer, these people don't know. They're not going to go read the studies. They just have to listen to two different versions of the truth. And then they decide that truth is right and that one isn't. Which really comes down to a good question for you, which is... Juries believe in stories, but not necessarily scientific evidence. How should we feel about a law system that's set up like that?
0: You know, it's still the best and you've got a jury of your peers is the, you know, uh, is the, uh, the rule. And that's why jury selection in cases like that is so critically important. Um, and the, The parties get a chance to, you know, voir dire the the pool of jurors, and I'm sure you're aware of this. And then they, you know, they have many times they'll bring in, you know, in these cases like this, they'll bring in psychologists to sit at the table to listen and look at. You know, when two billion dollars are at know, the table, they're going to bring lots yeah, and lots of people. Yeah. Bring- perspective. They look at prospective jurors, mannerisms, you know, their body language. I mean, it's crazy, but that's why you try to get the best jury you can and just and then put on the best case you can. Um But, you know, it, it's it's not our system isn't set up that, OK, they're going to bring in a pool of scientists to be on the jury, you know. <laughs> it's just not set up that way and uh,
1: and frankly that would be dangerous too right yeah. if you have a bunch of people that they were trained in certain schools and they think a certain way you run a real risk of having some sort of indoctrination on on that side just as much
0: as you do right and you you know you've got you know little guy who's just a common citizen who got cancer and you know they don't want to have to convince a bunch of scientists they want a, a jury of their peers which is other people in the community, you know, um, so I still very much believe in the system. It doesn't always work, you know, but um, it it's a it's the best system that, that we've come up with in the in the world, in my opinion. And, you know, uh,
1: and there's a lot of young people coming through. I, I always see you being introduced to young people. People bring their kids by when somebody says,
0: Hey, I'm thinking about becoming an attorney. Yeah. What's your response? To? I usually tell them, I think you should think twice about it because, Whoa. Uh, yeah. Because, uh, uh, there are so many lawyers now, Vance, that, um, are coming out of law schools. And, uh, if you happen to, you know, do well enough in law school, get hired by a big firm right out of school, you're going to make a lot of money right away but you're also going to have no life okay and they're going to work you to the bone and you may or may not make partner in 10 years Um, and um, the alternative is you come out and you want to work for the prosecuting attorney's office or you want to work for the public defender's office or you want to go into you know some sort of public sector which is you know, fine too, if, if there's a job, but there's just not a, you know, there we're oversaturated, oversaturated with attorneys already. And it becomes
1: a commodity that the margins go down to zero.
0: Exactly. Right. And it's just hard. I mean, I was fortunate that, you know, uh, I did get hired by a big law firm out of school. I was there for a year, didn't like it, but then you know, I I was getting a lot of calls from friends and contacts for, you know, traffic cases and divorce cases and collection cases and, you know, minor stuff that the firm that I was with really wouldn't even let me handle, which I totally understand uh, because they didn't take cases like that. So then I went with a small firm and, and cut a deal with the firm where they paid me a, a lesser salary, but I got 50 percent of what I brought in and I made
1: I wow. Think. Now you got a piece of the pie. Now you're, know, yeah. your relationships and people right. trusting you and thinking that you are the attorney for them benefits you as well. That's yeah, good. definitely. So I, that's you a know, hell of
0: an opportunity. Well, you know, and I, you know, was a deal, I cut with them and it worked out great for both of us. And I, I actually made more in my first year or in, really in my second year out of law school than I would have made at the big firm. And then I just continued to grow that. And, but it's hard work. I mean, that's what I tell young lawyers or young people that are thinking about going to law school. It's, you know, be prepared to, you know, work long hours, go out at night, join volunteer boards be on you know, do things that where you're going to meet people and make contacts and, you know, and it's just a lot of hours and it's a lot of hard work. And I'm not saying, that you know, I mean, I'm, I, I love to work hard, so it's not a problem for me. But, um, you know, it's a sacrifice that your family makes when you do that. Um, the one thing I did that I always I, – that I never missed were I had I had four children. They all played sports, and I never missed their games ever. Really? You made it to every single game of your kids? Every, well, when they played in college, two of my my daughters played in college, and they overlapped two years at Auburn. And so okay. – Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So six years and an average of about, say, 25 games, soccer games a year. So there's 150 soccer games. And I don't think my wife and I missed more than 10 games in those six years, either at home or wherever they were.
1: But you were in a position to be able to do that because you put the work in for the first 15, 20 years. Right, and
0: I didn't have set schedule. It, It was, you know. Like I told, you know, I'd tell Julie, well, I can work any 60 or 70 hours of the week I want. It's just, you know, when I want to work them. But but even when I was gone, I was staying in contact with clients. Thank God for cell phones. And, you know, but I always stay in contact with my clients if they need me. I call them back when I'm gone. I still do that. But um,
1: those hours that you're talking about that a new person has to put in. One of the thoughts that I have that's kind of a comparison to banking Mm -hmm. is that, when discovery used to happen, you used to have to, somebody would get, so discovery is you and I are in a lawsuit. You've got information that I believe I should have access to in order to be able to adjudicate this case. So you send me over files and files and files. Could be, could fill this entire. Well, you, at, you
0: you send me a request, a request for, for production of documents or interrogatories, and then we have to respond to it.
1: And then for the next three months, we get to go through all those. So we're going to hire some young lawyers maybe and that well okay to go through these things and and there was a whole bunch of work done in the legal system just by somebody reading contracts just going through and and highlighting every piece of paper that you have but now there are computers and you can automate a whole bunch of that which the beginning entry work just like at a bank there used to be a lot of tellers and you would teach them this is how money works this is how to keep your drawer you know up to date but when you get rid of that through automation, what happens to the system of teaching people if they if the ground floor is now filled by automation?
0: Well, that's a good question. I mean, in the practice of law, you come out of law school, you have no idea how to practice law. None. Whatsoever. None at all. None. None whatsoever. What did you learn in school then? You learn the fundamentals. I mean, your first year, you take constitutional law, contracts, property, Evidence and civil procedure, okay, and torts. And those are fundamental areas of law. You take that for a full year. Then you get into more elective courses like tax, corporations, insurance, and stuff. But, you know, it's like when you, when you go to four years of medical school, you know, your last two years in medical school, you're doing clinicals. You're working on patients. Then you go to a residency program. And you're doing more clinicals and you're doing more practice. You know, you don't have that in law. You know, you come out of law school, you've never written a contract. You've never reviewed an asset purchase agreement. You've never tried a case. So you, you have to learn. And that's why you just, you know, and you learn by being mentored and you learn by doing and making mistakes and having to correct them. And, it's pretty arduous. I mean, it takes, you know, several years before you really feel comfortable. And I, you know, I still, you know, you know, come across stuff that I have to teach myself, you know, and, and, but it's easier now because I know where to go and what to do. It's just a little bit easier, but it never stops. You never stop learning, you know, but, um, so if you
1: take away that base layer, when, when, where do they get the experience? Then Well, I
0: don't, I don't know that that base layer ever goes away in the practice of law because you, you know, you're thrown into something, uh, on, you know, as a young lawyer, you know, there's no, there's no amount of automation that can, that can make up for knowing your case and knowing your client and knowing the documents you have to spend time with them or you're not okay. going to know. You're just going to be wailing away out there.
1: You're not going to be able to have a computer that says no. I went through all these files and this is the summary no. and this is what you need to know. No,
0: you're not. And that's not I at least I, I don't think so. No,
1: because there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, automation coming for some of these high priced things like if you're paying. A first year, a student, one year out of college, but they're, you're paying them one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year to go through contracts. It's real valuable for somebody to figure out how to automate that. Right. A lot more valuable than figuring out how to how to automate or make a robot out of the McDonald's worker. Right. This is, right. That's real money.
0: Right. Right. I I I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just old school. I don't know that I would trust a computer to go through a document for me. Interesting. <laughs> Unless you know, I had seen it done and experienced the 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 result. A number of times.
1: Okay. Well, that's a, it's a, it'll definitely be something that'll pan out. I mean, I think that one of the over one of the reasons for oversaturation, at least in the beginning, one of the reasons it's tougher for kids to get uh, oh, yeah. jobs is because there are computers that are definitely there are certainly people out there selling services that oh, yeah. claim to be doing the oh, automation yeah. of that. Yeah. Be interesting to see what happens. I I did not know that. Uh, I wasn't aware of that. Well, Kevin, I know that I have kept you a long time into your morning. I really appreciate you stopping by. Thank you so much, uh, not just for coming by, but for all the work you've done for me and my family. You've been somebody that I have trusted on a very deep level, and you've been a wonderful, wonderful friend. So thank you for coming by. Vance, it's been a pleasure. Great to have you. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you so much to Kevin King for stopping by on such late notice To close out, I want to do two things. First, I'm going to tell you about a couple of people that I think are worth following on Twitter. And the other thing I want to do is talk about the bonus episodes of the podcast. So first, I want to throw a big thank you out to uh, a man that has become a close friend in the last year. His name is Jared McDaniel, and he is a cattle rancher out on the plains or the desert of Oklahoma. And uh, he has been incredibly supportive He's given me a lot of great feedback, critical sometimes, giving me advice on what I can do better. And outside of that, I think he's just a great example for the value that you can derive out of Twitter if you put your real heart and soul into it. So, if you go to Jared McDaniel's Twitter feed, and that's Jared J E R O D McDaniel M C D A N I E L, I'll put it in the show notes. If you go to his Twitter you see that this is a guy talking about markets. He's talking about his political philosophies and he's asking questions. And I have seen it many times before where he comes out with a strong opinion. But if you come back with him and have something else to say, he he responds and he wants to have a good, challenging conversation. Another person that I think is worth checking out is a man named Brian Scott. And he goes by The Farmer's Life on Twitter Brian's an interesting character. He is a corn farmer from Indiana, and uh, he not only does the regular seed corn and soybeans, but he also grows popcorn. And he has for years put up videos on YouTube and Facebook describing what it's like to be a farmer. And uh, some of his most famous videos are the the ones where he's allowing his son to turn over. I think he was a planter to turn around a planter out in the fields and to keep driving it. I think his son must've been five or six years old. Uh, he also has some really interesting drone footage. And, um, in one in particular is to show the amount of glyphosate poured over, uh, an acre large field. It's, it's kind of dynamic and it's got really cool, cool music. Anyway, both of these people, Jared McDaniel and Brian Scott, I think are worth following on Twitter and I hope you'll check them out and, and engage with them and let them know that you heard about them on the Vance Crow podcast. The other thing I wanted to do was throw um, a little bit of information out about the bonus episodes. So last week, I put out a bonus episode describing why it is that I care so much about the discipline of communication. And I told the story of when I saw how somebody that can communicate more effectively than you can, can stand up on a box and sell snake oil. This received so much positive feedback that uh, I'm definitely going to be doing these in the future. I've, I've spent a little bit of time uh, since the bonus episode trying to put together another one and um, I'm looking forward to it. So I'll continue to publish these videos here on, and and uh, podcasts here on uh, Wednesdays and then put out a bonus episode some other time. Uh, you'll also notice if you flip over to YouTube that there is no YouTube video this week I've been really struggling. I got a new camera and I've struggled to make it work consistently. And so this time I thought uh, Kevin's interview was so good that I didn't want to um, have kind of bad video up there. It just didn't feel right. So I'm going to skip putting the video up on YouTube this week. We'll be back next week. Hopefully I will have learned more. Anyway, this is just the trials and tribulations of putting together a podcast. I'm learning so much and I appreciate that you are doing, um, you're so patient with me. You've been patient through learning how to do audio better, learning how to get better guests, ask better questions. So thank you so much. If you like what I'm doing, I hope you'll uh, think to give it a review. Uh, those five star uh, reviews on iTunes and and actually sitting down and writing out what you like and uh, why the podcast makes a difference to you makes a really big difference. And sharing it on social media is what has helped this spread out so much just uh, this morning the podcast surpassed 4,000 downloads. So this is a pretty big milestone for me. I'm, I'm quite excited about it. So I'm going to sign off for now and we'll see you either at the bonus episode or next Wednesday.